brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of new world order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Phoebe Syed. Uh, Phoebe Syed is an independent chocolatier with uh, Dove Chocolate Discoveries, which is a registered trademark of Mars Incorporated. Uh, Dove makes the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, uh, which are tested for quality and flavor by Mars technicians. They offer not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces, spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes uh, if you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet tasty gift then dove chocolate discoveries is the brand for you now the sponsor is phoebe syed so you want to go to her site uh, and her site is mydcdsite.com front slash phoebe syed uh, p-h-o-e-b-e-s-a-a-d uh, so it's my M-Y-D-C-D, site, S-I-T-E, dot com, uh, front slash Phoebe Syed. And there's going to be a link to that. It should be up there by the time the show airs. Uh, on OppermanReport.com and also OppermanReportBlogspot.com. It's already on the Facebook page. You can check it out there as well. Okay. Now, we got some uh, 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 incredible show for you today. Okay. Our guest today is Alan R. Warren. He's the author of the book, Above Suspicion, The True Story of Serial Killer Russell Williams. Uh, Alan has a website, somethingweirdmedia.com. Seems to fit right in for our show, I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay. And uh, Alan, are you there? Yes. Hey. Uh, 
thank you so much, man. I'm really excited about this. Um, tell us about yourself first. Before we get into your book, um, Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams, tell us about Alan R. Warren. Well, what can I tell you? I, I, <laughs> I, I, I've been uh, working at different radio stations for a while. You know, I worked at a couple of music radio stations as a DJ, um, did some, uh, and I do the true crime report for KFNX in Phoenix, and just uh, starting in Seattle now at KKNW. And I've been writing the, um, in the true crime case files magazine as well. And you're living up in Seattle now, right? Yeah, I, uh, I have a place in Seattle and uh, a place up north in, in, in Canada, actually, as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how'd you get involved in this ca uh, Canadian story? Because this guy, uh, Russell Williams, uh, he's from Canada. Yeah, well, what happened was I, I'm sort of like um, Ted Cruz, but I always say I'm nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was born to an American mother in Canada. So I've had... Uh, a lot of my young life was in both countries. I would go back and forth between Vancouver and Seattle. So I was very exposed to uh, Canadian culture as well as uh, Russell Williams. So that's how I found out. So you were following us in the news while it was going on? Sort of. You know, with, with the Russell Williams one, it was kind of sidelined. I, it wasn't as main of news as the uh, Scarborough Rapist, because that was going on the same time. And then Paul Bernardo who got convicted of that had much a much bigger name you know he, he killed his sister-in-law who was 13 and did all these terrible things so it was kind of um, more headline for me than Russell Williams was at the time yeah you mentioned the Bernardo case and that thing was uh, incredible that he and his wife killed yeah. his wife's little sister and then she put on his little sister's clothes right? <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> Uh, so, so, so that had so many bizarre parts to it, and it was really the focus. And then, of course, Russell Williams didn't get caught until later. Right. So, uh, you know, the Bernardo thing just kept going, and then you find out about the little sister and then how they filmed it before she, before they killed her, but they filmed the rape. Um, it was, you know, it was just really strange. And she's out, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, well, Canadian crime. Uh, she got, see, she turned evidence against him, and uh, so they give her a deal. So they let her out after, you know, what, 10 years or something, and he's away for life. So they let her out and uh, give her a whole new identity hmm. and uh, let her get on with her life. And now she's remarried and has kids. Incredible. Okay. Now, now before uh, getting ready for the show, I, I, you know, I Google who's this guy, Russell Williams. I never heard of him. You know, I Google the name of the book, actually, uh, Above Suspicion, The True Story of Serial Killer Russell Williams. And the first thing I find is a YouTube, the, uh, on YouTube. And they got a two and a half hour confession of this guy being interrogated and and interrogated by this really polite police officer in Canada. He's <laughs> a charming <laughs> guy, you know, and he, he's just going along with it. The first 10 minutes of this uh, video, this guy, Russell Williams, is just nodding his head and agreeing with everything that comes out, you know. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Riveting, riveting stuff, man. Uh, so everybody, I recommend everybody listening to the show right now to, to check out YouTube and this, this two and a half hour confession. Uh, by uh, uh, Russell Williams. So, so tell, who, who is this guy, Russell Williams? Tell me about him. Well, Russell Williams, um, 
Uh, at the time he got arrested, he happened to be uh, in charge of uh, Trenton Air Force Base, which is Canada's um, primary and major base. So uh, what I mean by that is it's the base that trains, sends all of their people that go to war, like Afghanistan, anywhere that there's problems. That's their war base, you might say. If Canada's involved in some sort of conflict, it comes from that base. And um, he was put in charge of that. So he became the commanding officer, the wing officer. And that um, was quite a, quite a big um, move for him because he came from very small beginnings. He, um, his, his parents were immigrants. They came over uh, in the 60s. And they worked in the new, or his dad worked in the nuclear plant in Toronto and uh, nuclear research. He was a metallurgist, and uh, so, so he had a humble beginnings. Uh, it wasn't like he came from lots of money, and, uh, but he had a really strange upbringing. Uh, you know, if we talk about his parents, um, because they came over um, from Britain. He was born in Britain, came over with his parents and his brother. And at the uh, same time, another um, nuclear scientist came over from Czechoslovakia and because they were both new to the to the neighborhood and both working in the same job the fathers became good friends being immigrants and they would hang out together all the time and by the time Russell was six <laughs> the parents had swapped wives get out of here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know and now this is this is really crazy for the 60s in the 1960s how does the, you know it's not something uh, originally apparently they were involved in a swingers club that was in town and um, it was kind of underground because it was a fairly conservative city a lot of uh, military lived there and so they belonged to a private swingers club they would send all the kids to one house and have one babysitter take care of them all and they would go do their swinging Okay, and so this went on for a while, but what happened was Russell's mother found out that her husband, his father, had actually fallen in love with this other wife. So she picked the kids up and left and filed for divorce. And that was a huge controversy back then um, in the 60s. You know, it, it just wasn't going on. So uh, they separated, divorced, and she took the kids and moved to Toronto, the big city. And he stayed with the new girl. And there was so much uh, negative press that they decided to move to New York for a different job that he took. But they didn't last a year, and they broke up. So, so what do you think? Because, you know, we were talking off the air a little bit. Um, do you think that uh, living under those kind of conditions with his parents, that maybe he was uh, ever molested as a kid or something like that? Well, you know, that was interesting because when I was going through all of this, I thought, you know, uh, you know, I'm roughly the same age as him. And I'm thinking in the 60s, if my parents would have split up and taken the neighbors, each other's spouse and done all that, and then all of the talk, could you imagine the talk around town and you go to school and it would have been pretty devastating. Mm. So what I did was I, I, I approached a couple of psychiatrists and psychologists, and one was Diane Emerson, who was writing psychopaths in your lives and she's been been all over the place and I and I 
give her all the details. And at first I was thinking, from what he ended up doing later in his life with all the different women and how he used to torture them and, and do all these things, I was thinking, I wonder if he was abused or if this was something that happened between that split up. Now, her view was this is probably a behavior that he learned from his father. Mm. It's not, not that he, had, he was abused himself, but he saw his father abusing his mother and also probably wearing woman's clothing. He learned that behavior because he's, he's considered a sociopath and he mimics. So what they do is at a very young age, at four, five, and six, they learn to mimic behavior because they don't feel uh, the same way as we do. They don't have the empathy. Like if the, you know, a dog's dying on the road or someone's hurt, it's not like they feel, oh my God, I'm sad or sorry. They just copy what other people do around them. You know, learn how to cry, learn how to be upset, but they don't really feel it the same. Now, was Russell Williams, did he wear women's clothing? Yeah, that's what we didn't know this. Okay. But um, uh, uh, what he started doing was he started, he would break in people's houses or he would sneak in someone's house and he would steal, um, he would go to the woman's room and steal the, the, the woman's undergarments and he would wear them. And that was kind of the first sign of anything. Not that, you know, originally we didn't know this. This is something we found out after the fact. But, yeah, he started, he had this uh, need to wear women's clothing. And so that was the, kind of the first, you know, there's something going on here. Now, just a quick question. Was he wearing the women's clothing in the house where he was stealing it, or would he steal it and take it back to his own house and put it on? Both. Okay. <laughs> Because when, when he started doing the break-ins, yeah. he, he would go into the house, he would go directly to um, uh, the girls' bedrooms, whether it was girls, the wife, whoever, female who lived in the house, and he would go through their drawers, and if he felt comfortable in the house, he would take off all of his clothes, and then he would put on the girls' clothes. And, and how we know this for a fact is what he did was he brought a camera and a camcorder in with him to the house. He would set up the camcorder at the end of the bed, and he would go into the girl's clothing, he would take, uh, take off his, and he would try on their panties and bra, lay on the bed, and, and it would all be on film. And then he would also do shots, like take pictures with his, his camera. And he would, he would do an array of, of outfits, it wasn't just one. And then some of them he decided, I guess he liked them so much, he would put them in his bag and take them with him home. And do we know what age he started doing this? Uh, no, and see, that's something we don't know. We really don't know. Um, you know, where he went wrong, I guess, if you want to call it that, or where this behavior started to become, um, we really don't know. We just, we kind of know roughly in 2007 where it started, where we actually have evidence of it. And that's, that's all we do know. And, you know, and I have to say, wh what we do know is from 2007 to 10, when he was convicted, he was convicted, he had broken into 88 homes for sure. He had over 800 pairs of undergarments in his house of different females. He also stole their vibrators. He stole their um, nighties their bathing suits, um, pictures of them, 
um, everything he could. I mean, it started out simple with just panties and panties and bras, but it slowly went, worked its way up to, um, uh, you know, even dresses. He was taking their dresses by the end of it. Good thing they stopped before he got to coats, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I hate know, to joke, and right? you know, and the thing the thing is, he was elevating. It right. started out with what we know with just the minor stuff, but you know, it, it again, we don't know where it starts, and it's, behavior like that doesn't turn on. Yeah. You aren't forty years old, and you go, you know what? I'm going to break into my neighbor's house and steal the wife's panties. You know, it's not something that you just do at forty. Um, where it starts, um, we don't know, and I have to say that as well because these break-ins he was so good at them he he barely got reported he was breaking into places like uh, there was um like 200 break-ins and maybe 15 percent of them got reported because he was so good at covert he would get in um do his little thing take it and leave you know, the example is the very first one that we found out about, and this is from the filming that he did himself, was his neighbors, and they were called the Murdochs, and they had a 12-year-old girl, and uh, she used to bake him muffins, and, and they spent a lot of time together as family. And uh, you know, so the Murdochs' stepmother was sick, so they had to go away the weekend. He would break, go into their house, and uh, wear all the clothes, do all these things every single day they were gone, come and then take panties and clothes, and they would come back and they wouldn't even know it. In fact, he would go over and talk to them, and not the wiser of it. Now, was, did he have some kind of military training to do this kind of uh, surveillance and espionage and break into places? Not any more than normal. I, I mean, I, I I'm not trying to say put him down, but I'm just saying he was just an, a normal officer. Uh, he was obviously quite good because he moved up through the ranks. You know, he worked himself up to, uh, you know, a, a commanding officer of an Air Force base that had thousands of people he was in charge of. He was also in charge of, he's the guy that um, when Queen Elizabeth came, he was the one in charge of, of her whole tour. So he would fly her to all the different cities. And and he, so he, you know, there's tons of pictures of him, and you can see it in the book and online, of him with the Queen standing side by side. And he also flew the Minister of Defense, and he also, uh, all the dignitaries, and even the Americans, like uh, their high ministers or their high officers, I would say, he would, he's the one that escorted them throughout Canada. Yeah, also yeah. Prince Philip, too. It says in the description here, but Prince Philip, the Governor General and the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, so, you name it. Yeah, he was a, a, an elevated guy, you know, and, and especially when you think, because um, to be in charge of this base that was doing all the training where they were sending guys to Afghanistan and stuff like that, uh, like the Canadian Air Force is only like 500 planes. The whole Canadian Air Force, you can look it up. Right. They don't have a, you know, it's like America, you got 500 planes on one base, you know. Uh, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the Canadians, I mean, they, they have a very well trained outfit and it's quite good. I'm not, but it's small. Yeah. And the reason it's small is because it's on the border with the U.S. You right. have to realize that they, they can be the way they are because they have the U.S. attached to it. It's not like Australia or England where you're sort of on your own at a distance. You're like right beside. So I think they, they, they don't have as much 
uh, you know, military, and they're not as they're not a military nation. Um, that's just the way it is. But they're very well trained people. They're very well respected. So I don't think, um, you know, and and for me, I thought, well, he's very well trained. But I had to, uh, you know, you speak to his commanding officer, the one that put him in charge, who's now retired, and even he said he had no idea. He still questions that today. Hmm. He still doesn't know how to handle um, the idea that he approved him for this. Um, and so, so it's, and you know, and again, I talked to um, the psychiatrist and I talked to him about, well, how did he get through the evaluations? How would he pass all of these uh, mental tests, you know, to become, uh, you know, such a high classification? And they said, because most of the tests are done and conducted on um, people that are in prison. And so they, they, they created these psychological tests from people that are you know, they've been put away. And uh, so what I'm basically saying is um, anybody that's as smart as he was can easily walk through these tests. Okay. You said earlier that that he uh, had broken into 88 homes and stolen panties and stuff, right? And then he would take that and categorize it, right? He he would, like, I had a catalog and uh, it was itemized. Yeah, Yeah. he actually, he started, um, um, he had several bags at home, like uh, tote bags, I will say, like carry bags that, you know, you might, you and I might take it for trip traveling somewhere through our basic luggage in for an overnighter or something. He had several of those at home and he started putting them in categories. Now I can't really identify what these categories meant to him. We don't really, we can't decide on the operation of his mind. So, and they didn't really seem to have any, like it wasn't like 12 year old girls or 40 or blondes or brunettes. He didn't have any sort of pattern, I, I, but he had he had them <laughs> he had them in groups for some reason all throughout his house all throughout the laundry room and he and he took pictures of everything he was meticulous and he put them all on his computer well, yeah how many pictures and it was like uh, 33,000 pictures and stuff like that right yeah oh yeah it was there was, was just um endless amount um and he, and now this is what this is what's really unique he put it all on his he shared a mac um laptop computer with his wife and on that he had it all filed and all desktop and cataloged as as some of them he had under the dates some of them he had under the person that he he um he stole them from and some it was just generic we don't we don't know what that maybe he didn't like those panties as good i don't know um but he had all these different files on the desktop and them all done and so that led to problems later um, with the wife, because this led to several lawsuits after he was uh, convicted. Okay, before we uh, get to the wife, I was definitely going to ask you about the wife. I already wrote that down. But you got to think, if just just these 88 houses alone he's breaking into, he's in there for a period of time doing whatever he's doing in there, posing, taking pictures of himself. Take stuff back. Then he's got a catalog. Then you know he's pulling his stuff out and he's playing with himself back at home, okay? Because this is what the guy's yep. into. Where does he have time to do anything else in his life? This well, is- you know, he didn't. He did nothing else in his life. He um, he um, got this second cottage. That that's where he kind of did all of his covert work from. I guess you would say headquarters. And all he did was um, go to work 
Monday to Friday. Um, his, he'd do a shift and get back home, and um, all he did was play and take pictures. That was his life. Um, he, he had nothing else because his wife, just so you know, she was an as, as associate executive director of the Heart and Stroke Foundation out of Toronto or Ottawa. And so she was a very busy person and she was gone all the time. So he, they had no kids. This is all he did. What, were their, what was their relationship like? Well, you know, from what we can find out, they they were quite happy. Like, and talking to all the different neighbors of of their home in Ottawa as well as on Tweed, um, all of their neighbors thought they were the best. They were like, they I got comments like they were like the ultimate power couple. They were super nice people. Do anything for you. She was in charge of uh, responsibility with the Heart and Stroke Foundation. She was very caring. He was very quiet. Everybody said that he's very quiet. They would come over and join the neighbors. In fact, their neighbors always had coffee out on their uh, on their deck, and all the neighbors hung out and would talk about you know things going on. And it was a very close, happy community. And they all thought, you know, um, these are great people. Um, they they loved them. There was none of them said anything bad. So, you know, they were good neighbors. But just think, he would have to be quiet. What else would he have to talk about? Yeah, <laughs> the only but thing looking, on his mind. Oh, yeah. Looking back at that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just blows your mind. Do we know anything about what their their their, their sex life was like the, between the wife and him? No, uh, I mean that's that's questionable. Um, they were together almost twenty years. Yeah, no kids. No kids, um, but they had 19 years of, it seemed like a normal married couple. Um, they both worked good jobs. They both did all all the things right. Their house was always uh, clean. And in fact, even the neighbors said that he was very affectionate. He would um, He would get his wife a drink. He would always be asking her if she's okay or do you need a drink? Let me get you this. Let me get you that. He would hold chairs, hold doors. Um, she would come home from her trip. They said he'd be out there carrying her luggage in even after 15 years at that time of marriage. So he was very attentive to her. Okay, but what, now what about all this material lying around the house, though? You know what I mean? Uh, was this under her nose? What, what do you think? Well... You know what? This this is the question, um, because not only did they share that laptop, and he had all these pictures on there. So let's just say maybe she never got on the computer, okay? But all of the stuff when the police um, did their raid and finally were searching all of the rooms, he had bags of all these women's clothing. See, and not only in, in, so you would open up a bag, and they would find let's say twelve pairs of panties, six bras, a nighty. Uh, bathing suit then they would have then there would be a couple of pictures of him wearing them in the same bag there would be pictures of the bed see he would break into the house take pictures of the bed take pictures of the dressers he would go to their laundry room hey guys i got a great new deal for you it's called factor america's number one ready to eat meal delivery service now i want you to take out a pen and paper and write down opperman 50 o-p-p-e-r-m-a-n five zero now, fact is, delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including Kato, Calorie Smart, 
vegan veggie, and more. Uh, There's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Two-Minute Meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Snacks, smoothies, and more. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or schedule your deliveries anytime. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. Now head to factormeals.com front slash opperman50. And then you use code opperman50 to get 50% off. That's code Opperman50 at factormeals.com front slash Opperman50. O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N-5-0 to get 50% off. Take pictures of their washer and dryer and, uh, and even take dirty clothes out of the dirty clothes bin and wear those and take pictures and then he would wear them on the bed and take, take more film and he was doing all these bizarre things but he had he, all of the stuff he collected was all open. None of it was hidden. You know, it was all in the laundry room and closets and dressers and in all throughout the house. They didn't have to um, search deep for anything. So, what did she know? Yeah, you know. You know, and let's, and let's just say she didn't know. He obviously wasn't scared that she would find it. Right. It, because all she has to do is go in the laundry room, go open a closet, and you see a bag full of panties and pictures of your husband in panties. Uh, wouldn't that kind of raise a question? Like, wouldn't you kind of go, hello, what's this? He, but he wasn't scared of that. It, 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 otherwise, he would have had it all hidden somewhere. Well, was she questioned about this? Yeah, you see, the thing is, she, she was questioned, and she said she had no idea. And her official statements... She's never done a press interview, refuses to. Yeah. But her official statement to the press, which she had no idea her husband was um, this, this monster. And she had that, that was her official statement. She left it at that. She refuses to talk. But several lawsuits have come up, and uh, the court has held her as being responsible. So, um, so in a way, civilly, she's been convicted of it, but not criminally. Did she have to testify in those civil trials or deposition? Yes. Oh. And again, everything that we have on that, she completely denies it, has no idea, never knew, never ever saw anything, and he was always the best husband. Interesting. In the interrogation, which you could find on YouTube, uh, he seems most concerned about the police back at his house tearing the house apart. Because his wife just got that house and she loves that house. Something to that effect that she's tearing apart in his <laughs> wife's beautiful house. Yeah. 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 So what do you make of yeah. that? Well, you see, that, that, that's another tie-in. Because, you know, when he first went in and he was really smug at the beginning, you know, he was kind of like, you know, 
he was a wise ass in a way. Uh, he was thinking that the way he acted, he was chewing gum. He had his arms crossed. He was kind of, you know, whatever, you know, and the, even the detective said, have you ever been interviewed by the police before? And he goes, well, I just intelligence, you know, I have got security clearance. You know, he was, he was real blah, blah, blah. And then of course they asked, as it slowly broke down and they, they started bringing out the evidence, the shoe prints, the tire prints, the blood, all this stuff that they actually had. And he would not give up until he was, you know, until he was sure that they wouldn't embarrass the wife. Right. Wouldn't, you know, but I'll, you know what else? So, so he gives them the, the evidence, tells them, yeah, it's all over the house and tells, tells them where the, the one body was that he, buried and then um so they go to the house uh with the mans and the and the csi of 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 canada and they say okay we're going to search through the house and they give the wife the notice so she can get her stuff and kind of leave and she does and then so they do the whole search get all the evidence and all this and then she sues the police for scratching her hardwood floor that's interesting you know, it's kind of not the response you would expect. I mean, if 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 you were the wife at home, and all of a sudden the police come and they're going to search the home, your husband's been arrested for two murders, you know, a couple of rapes and all this other stuff. You first of all, you're going to be totally in shock, right? If you didn't know, and you would be totally devastated. You would not the next day or two decide that. Well, they scratched my floors, and and then she, in her lawsuit, she, she didn't want them just fixed, resanded. She wanted them totally replaced. Oh, really? So was that quick that, that she sued? Oh, that that's interesting. Uh, it's interesting that she would even find a lawyer that would take that case. Well, I guess she probably had a lawyer already. I don't know. <laughs> it just, but it just was not something. And I think this is part of what. Um, caused a lot of people to believe that she knew more than she let on. Yeah. Did they have you know, a housekeeper? She wasn't, she wasn't in shock. She wasn't, yeah. like, devastated. It's, it, she wasn't acting like a person that way. I'm not a pro, but I, I'm telling you, that's the last thing I would be thinking about. Uh, didn't he say something, too, that there might be some blood splatter on that floor? Because uh, did he kill somebody inside that house? No. Yeah, he did, actually. Oh, he did? Okay. Um, he did. He, um, um, the second... Um, murder victim that he got convicted of. That's what we know. Because um, as we were talking earlier about the Paul Bernardo and his case, both happening at the same time in the same area, they were both in the same class together in economics. Um, so it, there's just so much going on. And they both had the same profile of girls and the same torturing and rape and killing that went on. So, and in fact, Paul Bernardo's lawyer has since the Williams conviction had said a lot of these cases that were thrown on to Bernardo were not done by him, but were in fact done by Williams. And so there's kind of a, we don't know, but we do know that the second victim, um, who was, her name was Jessica Lloyd. He actually had her, you see, this is what he would do. He actually broke into that girl's house, tied her up, took tons of pictures, raped her and kept her alive for a long period of time. And he actually took her back to his house, tied her up in the basement, and then would go to work, then come back and continue his assault. And he eventually killed her at his house. 
And his and wife so, was away on a trip? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, yeah, well, you know, who knows? <laughs> but, and, and, you know, there's something else really, really um, amazing to that particular case. Yeah. Because what he did was, um, so he has this girl in, uh, tied up and, and dead. He goes to another neighbor, um, Larry Jones, who likes to hunt. And he's all dressed up in his hunting outfit. And he goes over to the neighbor and said, oh, so you like going hunting? And the neighbor said, you know, Larry Jones says, well, yeah, I go partridge hunting all the time. Well, there's partridges around here, he answers. Yeah, where's your, where's your camp? Where do you go hunting? And, of course, Larry Jones tells him, well, I go down and give him the description of where it was. And so that's fine, fair enough. And then all of a sudden, uh, guess where they find the girl? Guess where he dumped her? Where Larry Jones was doing his hunting. You know, he, he actually tried to set up his neighbor. Oh, get it? I didn't even put that together. I thought you were saying and that he just just came up with a dump spot just on the fly there. But no, you're right. He was trying to set up the neighbor. And in fact, he went even further. When the neighbor goes hunting, he comes back, breaks into the neighbor's shop, steals a, a jacket, a pair of gloves, something something else, some other little... He, he, he grabbed three little things from that guy's house, or from his workshop takes it back, dumps it with the body. So this Larry Jones comes back home, goes, well, who broke into my shop? And he's worried about all of this expensive tools. Goes in there, none of it's been taken. Instead, it's an old jacket that his dog used to sleep in, pair of gloves, which he used to wear working, and of course has his blood and prints in it. So he, he actually went out of his way to try and set up his neighbor. And in fact, his neighbor did get arrested and the neighbor did have his house searched because they suspected he was an accomplice. Yeah, because well, they expected they thought he was the one that did it. This is before they even suspected Williams, the colonel. Okay. They they actually because they find uh, all this evidence that links it to the neighbor, and so they take him in for questioning. Now, one one girl that was assaulted and, and raped, and she had blindfolds on, and so she only heard her attacker. So they asked her to listen to this neighbor's voice. And she thought, yeah, it could be him. So they thought it was the neighbor right all along there. They, they weren't even interested in Williams. This is incredible. I, I got to say, too, by the way, I was looking on Amazon, and uh, every single review of this book is like a five-star review. Uh, the, I, don't, I think it's a 100% <laughs> five-star <laughs> review. <laughs> and, I, you know, you, you might be a great writer, but I think it's a story, too. I think it's, it's a story alone. Think, yeah. You know what? It's, it's all the story. It's not my writing. I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm just an average writer. I don't – I'm nothing. I just – but I take the facts and I just sort of put it from my point of view. I like putting in perspectives from other things just to kind of bring it down. Well, I like to talk about that, but no, I, you know, it's not, it's not me. It's just the story is, it's interesting because there's so many turns, you know, um, yeah. that like him setting up the neighbor and, and how it all sort of falls into place. But that in itself makes you kind of go, listen, it can happen to you. You know, you always hear about conspiracies and things like that, all these things, and, and you kind of go, no, it's too much of a coincidence and all this, but no. And in fact, you want to hear even more, one more thing about the neighbor? Yeah. Okay, so the neighbor's son worked at Sears. Okay. 
So this this son was contacted by this victim, you know, Jessica Loy, who was murdered uh, because her pump water pump wasn't working in the house or something. So the neighbor calls. Uh, so he, the son calls up the neighbor, Larry Jones. Can you go next door to Jessica Lloyd's house and fix her pump, her heater pump, or whatever was not working? So he goes over and does all this stuff, fixes it for no money, and comes back. So his prints are all over the girl's house that gets murdered, too. Oh, that's interesting. But he's been cleared, though. He's cleared now, but you see, that yeah. doesn't... You know what? He still... he was. It was jaded for three years. Yeah. This man was considered to be... Um, a rapist and a murderer and um, was really slammed, like really put down. And everybody, because you know once the media gets on and they think, okay, this is the person, and it kind of goes all over the papers and everybody thinks, oh, you know. He he was, there were people wouldn't talk to him, everybody ignored him, people spit at him, people hated him. He became, uh, it ruined his, it really did. It really ruined his um, his life in that community. Um, I, you can't you can't get that back. Um, so it's 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 amazing how Williams got away with it, but it's sad because this this poor guy did nothing but live and hunt and and was just a, a normal neighbor that did really nothing wrong. All of a sudden, um, he got put on trial and had nothing to do with him. All he was doing was trying fixing his neighbor's water pump and uh, hunting, and he gets um, put on trial. Yeah, and you know how these true crime forums are, you know, these amateur conspiracy theorists? There's probably yeah. people still out there pointing the finger at this guy, you know, even after uh, this other guy's confessed everything. Uh, let's yeah. take a commercial break right now. Okay, we're with uh, okay. Alan R. Warren. Uh, the book is Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer uh, Russell Williams. Uh, Alan's website is somethingweirdmedia.com. We'll be right back after these messages. And now a word from our sponsors. Did you know that 30% of all people on online dating websites and personal ads are either married or in a monogamous relationship? 30%. If you suspect that your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend may be cheating online, go to emailrevealer.com uh, at our online infidelity investigation. You give us their email address, and we can trace it back to online personal ads, dating sites, and social networks. We can even expand the investigation and find them uh, cheating on uh, escort service sites uh, or even porn sites if they're registered to porn sites and swinger sites. Uh, so check out emailrevealer.com if you suspect your spouse is cheating and check out our online infidelity investigation. William Ramsey is a producer here at the Opperman Report and he's just come out with a new book, Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. Now he just sent me a copy of this book. Oh boy, it's about two inches thick and there's a chapter on just about everybody in this book uh, that you can imagine. Uh, the Beatles. And, uh, <laughs> uh, Jack Parsons. Uh, everybody's in here. It's incredible. Uh, and I definitely recommend this book. There's a, a, a bunch of pictures in here, too, 
uh, of all these people in uh, different chapters and, and uh, information. Uh, Anton LaVey and people I've never heard of, too. There's a whole bunch in here. JC, JFC Fuller. I don't know who he is. Uh, but, but it's great stuff uh, by our, ho- our, our producer here, uh, William Ramsey. So check out Children of the Beast. Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. Uh, you can find it on Amazon.com or you can find it in the Opperman Report, uh, dot com bookstore. We have an urgent bulletin. Uh, it seems that the group Strawman is still on the loose. It has been confirmed that Strawman are, are Canadian, okay, and that. Uh, Authorities are asking people to stay indoors, lock your doors and windows until this group can be dealt with. You could find more information about this group, this group of Canadians, at strawmanmusic.com. You can have your ad played here. (laughs) We're looking for sponsors. Okay, In fact, we desperately need sponsors right now to take this show to the next level. Uh, So you can have your advertise your ad uh, played here red live you know like i'm doing now so artfully or we can even uh, work up a little jingle for you with some music and stuff like that and play it here you have no idea how inexpensive it would be uh, to have your ad played on the opperman report on seven stations uh, live friday night and another seven stations live on saturday night uh, plus replayed every day of the week on different stations and then archived on youtube Spreaker, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and all different kinds of podcasts, uh, Pod This and Pod Bean, all different kinds of places uh, who archive the show for us. Uh, and, and on those archives, uh, your, your ad would play indefinitely, forever. Uh, you also get a little uh, banner on OppermanReport.com. Uh, you get a mention on the air. You get a little interview on the air and all kinds of fun stuff if you sponsor Opperman Report. We have an opportunity to get this show on a major AM/FM station in California. We've been approved, uh, so if you want to sponsor us into that, uh, so incredibly inexpensive that that your ad would be heard uh, by a uh, the, the, the the range covers five million people in population, uh, where your ad would be broadcast, and all these other uh, stations would be thrown in for free. Uh, so really uh, affordable prices. To sponsor OppermanReport.com. Get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. You can get a copy of that book at EmailRevealer.com, or you can get a copy of that book now. It's back up on Amazon.com. How to Become a Successful Private Investigator by Ed Opperman. And this book has been updated a little bit from the previous book that we had uh, that was available to our wonderful listeners. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman. Uh, We're here today with Alan R. Warren. Uh, The book is Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. And Alan uh, got a website called somethingweirdmedia.com. And I would recommend people to go there and check it out because this guy's got a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, What do you you make? Back to the confession. What do you make of... uh, his stories seem to crumble, fall apart early on. 
Uh, he had no uh, accounting for his whereabouts. He didn't seem concerned with the, either for his wife or his boss or anybody. At one time, he was even claiming that he was at work and he had that key card, entry card thing. He made no attempt at even to, to account for his whereabouts. Why do you think a guy like this, he's a smart guy. Why didn't he get a lawyer? Why didn't he, he drop out and say, well, you know what? I'm going to talk to a lawyer. You know, that's that's been asked a lot. I, I really don't. I don't know what his motivation was because he did a lot of things wrong. Okay. Uh, first, first of all, you know how they, what they did was when the second um, girl was missing, they set up a roadblock and uh, were asking people, you know, as they stopped and asked them if they, um, you know, knew anybody or saw anything weird around the area. It was just a typical roadblock. It happened to be a day that he was driving the truck that he did when he uh, went and raped and killed her. So they had a tire print um, beside her house, and it matched. So they took note of it, and that's what, why they called him in. So he came in for the interview. And it seemed really strange that it, I think that he, he didn't, I think he thought he was above it. I think he thought he was too smart. And he didn't seem to be challenged. He, he wasn't, um, you know, it's hard to say. He, he went in with a big ego. Mm. And, and, and until they started bringing up the evidence of, look, you know, here's your tire print. And they also asked him if they could take his shoe print. And it's, it, it's strange that he would go into the interrogation wearing the exact same pair of shoes that he committed the murder in. And they had his footprints. Like he went into the house and uh, when he attacked her, and, and he also dragged her out of the house and took her home, but his shoes, he walked all through the blood. He made a big mess, and he left his prints all over. Um, it's almost like he thought he would never get caught. He, he didn't seem to cover his tracks. He didn't try to clean up after he went to a house and, and, and assaulted his victim. He just did it and left, and... I, I, I cannot answer that. Hmm. What about where they said that uh, one of the victims, I, I believe her name was Comus. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Comus. That, that, that she had um, uh, written things on her computer, that she had a, an interest in him, a romantic interest? What, what do you know about that? Well, no, actually what it was was she, she had actually, um, um, she was a corporal and worked on the base. And um, she was one of the people that flew with him and in some of the, you know, where he was flying around dignitaries. She actually was one of the ones that flew for our prime minister at the time in Canada um, down and around the world and came back type thing. So she was, she was in the team. And she thought that um, Williams had an interest in her, hmm. but she wasn't interested in him. And um, so that's, you know, the bizarre thing about that is for some reason he selected her and he, um, he would, he would um, like he went to her house ahead of time when she was gone flying the prime minister, broke into the basement and he, he would go through the house before he, you know, of a victim and he would make sure there was no man living there. So he would go through the drawers, the bathrooms and stuff to make sure she didn't have a boyfriend that was in and out. And then he'd come back when she, she was home, break in, and uh, do his thing. So um, it, it, with her, too, he even wrote 
um, a eulogy and uh, talked at her funeral. Oh, my God. Yeah, but that's an important point to make there is, is a lot of times, especially single women, they'll come home and they'll think, you know, I think someone's been in my house. Things are moved around. You know, it's something maybe someone broke in. If you think that, go out, get a dog, you know, <laughs> go out and change your locks. <laughs> you know, really, you know. Well, yeah, he pr- he's proved that a, over a hundred times. Oh, my God. Because because you've got to think that all just of the ones, the 88 that he's convicted of that we know about just because of his own incrimination of taking pictures, etc. Um, only 15% of them got reported to the police. So they didn't even know they were broken into. They had no idea. In fact, you know, that Murdoch family I've told you about that went away tw- twice, he went in. When they got back from the second trip, the daughter ran upstairs to unpack her stuff. Then she came down and said to the parents, look, my drawers are empty. My, I have no, no underwear in my drawer. And the parents looked at her, and they even laughed and said, yeah, okay, did you check the floor? Look in the laundry room, because, you know, teenagers. Right. That was just, it just people didn't believe it. It, it, it. They had to be shown the evidence. And then even then, a lot of, a lot of the people were kind of, what? When did he do this? Like, how did he do this? How did we not know? It, this, <laughs> you know, this was not... Um, he was very good at it, and I guess he just would move things around or take things, and people just didn't notice. Uh, it wasn't until later he actually would start to break into people's places, and then he wanted them to know he had been in. So, you know, in one house, he, t- he went in and he took took the, the lady's vibrator, and then he left a note on her computer say, telling her thank you. And he would love her to report it to the police because he'd love to show them what she used. Oh, wow. So he started to get brazen. He started to get, um, like, smug. Like, okay, yeah. And he wanted them to know. See, because the first couple of years, he was hiding it all, and he was doing it very well. They, most people didn't catch on that something was going on. So he started leaving notes for people. He started letting them to know that, hey... I took it. It was great. In fact, you know what? He would, he would, this is, you know, I don't know, a little nasty, but he would take, let's say, a vibrator and go into the woman's bedroom. He would take off his clothes and take a picture of himself, his own, of his penis, laying on top of the vibrator on the woman's bed and leave it for her. Incredible. (laughs) So he started getting, you know, he started from being really secretive and real covert to being, well, maybe you'll like this and leaving them notes and leaving them pictures and kind of letting them know, look, this is what I've got. So, you know, they would come home and it's like you got a picture of a man's, you know, on laying on your vibrator on your bed and it's gone. That would be just really weird. Now, now, what about, there's something in your book here in the description about the letters written to the victims. Yeah. Yeah, after he made his confession. Okay. Um, I guess, and I didn't realize this, but with the read technique and part of what they do is they try to seal the conviction by getting um, the perpetrator like him, like William. So they, you know, the Detective Smith who said, well, listen, um, maybe you should write something to the families and to the victims and, and that and sort of put the pressure on them. And at first he didn't, and then eventually he did. And he, and he wrote all of these notes to the different 
families or different victims. And um, it's, it's the police way of helping to verify. So in case, let's say, something happens with the confession or it gets thrown out, you know, there's always these technicalities. Yeah. It's kind of a backup of, listen, he wrote these notes to the victims. This is what he said to them. So, and, and uh, you know, it's pretty telling, too, in some of the notes, especially the one that we still say it's the unknown victim that he assaulted. Um, how he, in, in one phrase, in one letter he put, um, I hope this doesn't ruin you, and I know you'll grow up to be something great. And, and that kind of led a lot of us in the researching to think that, I wonder if she was underage. Because that's not something you would say to an adult. I hope you grow up to be something great. You don't say that to a, an adult woman. And you said that uh, uh, almost half the panties and stuff, 45 uh, of the panties, were little girls' panties that he was stealing. Yeah, exactly. All 45 of them, as well as he had lots and lots of... Uh, he took the little girls' dresses like um, that were 10, 12 years old. He took their dresses, their swimming trunks, he even took their shoes, um, nightgowns, uh, uh, all sorts of clothing from the miners. And um, we do know for a fact that the Crown Prosecution, as well as the defense, came to the plea agreement of him, you know, admitting to the two murders, two rapes, and the and the, all the break-ins, they came to that agreement as long as they wouldn't mention um, the pedophilia, you know, the underage pictures, the underage um, panties, all the extra stuff from minors. So they, they kept that out of the court documents. So that was not mentioned. And it wasn't until afterwards that we found out about it. Yeah, because, you know, it, like if the wife found these bags of adult clothes and it's okay, my husband's putting on adult women's clothes. I know a lot of people go for that. But, you know, when, what, what could her excuse be to finding little 12-year-old girls' uh, clothing in his house? He's definitely not trying that on. It's just for another purpose. Or how do he get it? Yeah. <sighs> well, you know, and, and some of them, in fact, you know, there was one that was really telling and it was probably the most... Um, bizarre one was you know, one of the places he broke into and she had they had three little girls there that were like 8, 10 and 12 and the one girl was just starting to menstruate and he went into the laundry room and he would take all of the dirty clothes and he found one that had some of her blood in it and he took over 75 pictures of that. Oh really? He, and he would, he, in fact how he did it was he took that pair of panties and put it over his face as a mask and took pictures and he put in and then he had to masturbate over top of the blood spot and he filmed it so he had a real affinity he really liked young girls uh, that you know I, I and I don't know why they kept it out of the you know some now there's one rumor that they kept it out because they wanted to protect the Air Force and the and and the whole military part um, fr from getting out. It wasn't so much to protect him; it was to protect the image of mil military. To protect the image of the military. Yeah, they thought that. Well, this is again. We don't know. This is just. We know that the, this is what they kept out of court, and we know for a fact of what he did. But why they didn't 
try to prosecute, we don't know. But one of the stories in some of the magazines, major magazines like McLean's, and uh, their their idea and their thought was it was to protect the image of the military. Uh, not only was he, I guess they thought it was better that he was just a convicted rapist and killer. Hmm. But they did. They didn't want to bring up that he also was doing it to minors. Well, you know, it's curious because you know when I was reading this, and yet the Queen of England and Prince Philip and <laughs> all these characters, you know, and then you got Jeffrey Epstein, you know, who had his own pilot and he's flying around, he's raping all these little girls too as well, and he's flying around Prince Andrew, you know, uh, sort of a connection yeah. there. What, did you make any kind of connection with any of that? No. Uh, well, you know. Uh, we couldn't find anything like that. He, he was um, he was to himself. This was right. all about his world and all what he was doing, you know. And I don't think it was about the the royalty that he was flying and the and the different dignitaries. It was that was just part of what he did. His because you know he would go home when you asked, well, what what else didn't he have anything else to do? I don't know because he was able to go home. And and at night, he would take out his bags of clothing and lay them all across his floor in his house and take pictures. And he would match them up. So he would take a panty from one bag and a dress from another and a top from another and put them all. He, he did. It was like he had it like a catalog fashion magazine. He was putting all these different images together and all these different pairs of clothing together. He was obsessed and I only say that word obsessed because that's all he did yeah. every night. That's all he did was, and, and he just took tons and tons of pictures, film. It, that's all, that's what his life was about. It wasn't about um, going out for pizza. It wasn't about doing anything else. Yeah, the amount uh, of time he was devoting to this is, uh, uh, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to conceive. That one person could be spending this amount of time uh, on on this kind of illegal activity, and especially no one knowing about it. But now we kind of brushed past it. We kind of rushed past it. But the Bernardo case, we, and uh, this guy was in the same economics class as Paul Bernardo, who was this notorious serial rapist. And like we said before, him and his wife uh, uh, killed her little sister. Then she put on the little sister's clothes, and they filmed all this. You can't get any more bizarre than that. And this guy, by some coincidence, we would believe, is in the same economics class. And, and you're saying there's some kind of information that, that they were friends? Well, you know, that's the thing. Um, both, both, I have two reports that I found that said that they were friends and um, from research done at the time. And uh, it was in newspapers and a magazine that they, they, they were definitely in the same class. And they hung out together, and they had witnesses that were in the classes that said they were friends, that would go out and drink and uh, did part of the same college sort of thing together. Um, now, the only thing I have different to that is his best friend, Jeff Farquhar, who um, did interviews, said that he didn't know Paul Bernardo, that they, that he, he would have known if they were, best, they, they were friends because... You know, he was best friends with him. And they actually shared a dorm room together. So, uh, you know, I've kind of, I'm kind of mixed on that, but we, mm. I, I will say for fact, they were in the same class, they were doing the same thing, and they knew the same people, uh, you know. 
Yeah, it always blows my mind when you hear about like a serial killer who has a partner, like uh, Bianchi, you know, and they have a partner who, who do their crimes with them. Like, like, how does the topic come up? How does it, you know, wait, hey, you want to go out tonight and get some beers and go kill some women? You know, how does that come up in a conversation? <laughs> you know what I mean? But when you got, yeah, I, I could never figure that out. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know how it works. <laughs> What's the first, I, you know, how does it come up? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, by the way, I, you don't, I hope you don't mind. I like doing this. But somehow you know, it does people. come up, is the thing, because they're doing it. They, they, the conversation started somewhere, okay? Yeah. And here you got yeah. two guys. You got Bernardo and you got this guy who are – that's this is their main focus in life. If they had a conversation with each other, they must have picked up the clues right away that this is what they're into because it's all they're thinking of. Yeah, I would think <clears throat> because with anybody – you know, it's even with myself or anybody, we all have our things that we like to do or our hobbies or, you know, the, whatever it is. And you do get drawn to other people with the same sort of hobbies, the same sort of things you like, right? I, it, it, I don't know, maybe it's a coincidence or maybe they could pick up on each other on, yeah. on what they were doing. I don't know, you know, it's something, because I'm not in touch with that. I, it's not a thing that I like to do. Yeah. Personally, now, ha <laughs> so, but but no one's ever questioned Bernardo about this. Or Bernardo's alive too, right? Yeah, and Bernardo's in prison for life. No, and in fact, uh, the only thing we hear is from Bernardo's lawyer, who's bringing up because you see, what, there was a lot of cases that happened around the university campus of girls that were attacked that nobody got convicted of. We don't know if it was Williams, and we don't know if it was Bernardo. And, of course, Bernardo's lawyers bringing up saying, no, it was all Williams. So they're going to blame each other. And in some of the cases, in fact, the lawyer is trying to have them overturned and put it on to Williams. So, uh, you know, it's kind of they both had the same technique. They both like to get the girls. They like to attack them. They like to tie them up and blindfold them. See, that was the, that was kind of the hard part because they would blindfold them and they would they would you know, take them down to the basement or take them wherever and attack them for a long period of time. And if they let them go, they let them go. So all the girls could do was, if they heard their voice, try and describe their voice. It's really tough to convict people. So, um, but they both did the same thing. I wonder if Bernardo's wife dated this guy Williams. <laughs> you know, yeah. if she's the uh, Carla Homolka, if she's the uh, the uh, connection between these two. You know, um, I wouldn't. You know what? I wouldn't be surprised at this point. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's why a lot of people did put it on Williams' wife. Yeah, you know, because you know they were together nineteen years. How could you live in the same house? How could you share the same computer? When um, the police came, they could just find all of these clothing and all these bags and then in the bags there was pictures of him wearing the clothing of you know he would he would set up the film he would go into the girls bedrooms and he would masturbate all over the bed and he'd film it and then th those were all in there that was all there oh my god nothing, yeah. Was, yeah, nothing, so nothing was hidden yeah so if she ever looked uh, in those bags then she, then she knows one and but she's never charged with anything only, only civilly it's, it's just amazing well, yeah, because they asked, and of course she'd lawyered up. I don't know anything. I was gone all the time. I had no idea he was a monster was her basic saying, and that's blah, blah, blah. He he took the plea. And, and the thing was, 
he sold her portion. He sold to her, his wife, his share in the house for sixty thousand Canadian dollars, and that drew a flag because you know these are multimillionaires at this point, you know six-figure incomes for both of them, and so the different groups, the unknown girl, the families of both victims, and the neighbor all sued them as a couple. And of course, it's the law was you can't hold your you know your spouse responsible. But after it got to the Supreme Court, they decided in this particular case she could be held responsible. So what she did was she settled with them all out of court to stop the proceedings, and the the prosecution never went after her after that. Uh, I think that's a disgrace to tell you the truth. Now, um, well, it's, yeah. it's typical. You know, I'm I'm finding this. I don't know about yourself, but you know, covering tons of cases, of crime cases, I, I'm just finding it more and more um, normal for this type of thing to happen. I don't know if these prosecutors are overworked. I don't know if they just want to get the convictions, get things out of the way. Um, it's it's more about the process of of convicting and putting people away and not really about finding the truth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you got somebody um, to hang it on, you know, why not just move on, you know? Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned something too, about how the neighbors bought the house from them, uh, because they didn't want looky lose, I guess you'd call it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, you know, that's the very first family that we know about that he has film of when he break, he broke in the Murdochs, which were next door, right next door. And he would go in and, you know, masturbate on the twelve-year-old's bed and take all of her clothes and wear them and film it. He did that a few. He did that three times that we know of. They bought the house that that he owned, and and also this is the same house that he killed his his second victim in. Jessica Lloyd killed her in the in the garage of that same house, and um, so they bought that house. And um, their one interview they did, exclusive interview, was just saying that they didn't want it to be, uh, um, they said, in their words, were it was a place that um, should should be held up and and respected, and we don't want this to be a a place that everybody comes and and looks. I, I, I don't understand that, you know, um, because the people that want to drive by the house where he did all this stuff are still going to drive by the house. Yeah, right. Uh, so I don't understand. I guess their their point is that they don't want it becoming um, being sold to people that are going to use it, like open a B and B. You know, <laughs> the Colonel Williams murder house B and B or something. I I I don't know. They didn't want it to become a a place. Uh, like you were even we were talking before, like the uh, down the Sharon Tate's house and the the, the people that own that now uh, have tours and yeah. <laughs> and media and all this stuff going on like that. I guess maybe they didn't want that happening. Did he put on any defense, or he pled guilty? No, he just directly they settled. Um, like I said, they settled. They decided to keep the pedophile out of it, all the underage stuff. He settled for 88 break-ins, uh, two murders, and uh, two rapes, and um, 
they what they did was so they went in, settled on it, and it's against the law in Canada um, to do a plea bargain. So they decide on what they're going to charge him with, and then he just admits that he's guilty. They run through the um, the evidence, and the judge sentences him. So it's a matter of it took a half a day for them to do the whole trial, and he got put away for life. I think he had several life sentences, right? He got two life sentences and 60 years on top of that. Okay, and, and he's in some kind of solitary confinement, maximum security? What's his situation? That's right. They moved him to the Quebec, um, and it's the maximum security. So there's 224 prisoners in there. They're all put away for crimes such as his, like they're all um, serial killers, murderers. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're Canada's extreme. It's actually... Um, not funny, but it is that in that in the whole country of Canada, you just have one prison that holds 224, and that's all they have put away for maximum in the whole country. That's like what we have here in a week, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I know, and that's 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 the what I find funny. It's just like wow, that that's all there is. He gets one hour of activity a day, 23 hours in confinement. And do they let them have a camera? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you know, at least they're not letting him have a Twitter account or oh, Facebook. Yes. That's a whole other like, story, yeah. Yeah, that drives me crazy. We covered, when I was in Phoenix, the Jody Arias case, and she's out there, and you know, Twittering, and it just drives me crazy that a, a murderer put away for life can do that sort of thing. Yeah, that was a fascinating yeah. case, too. You covered that as well? Yeah, yeah, actually, and I, I had uh, Juan Martinez twice, had two two really good interviews with him, like hour long, and one, two with uh, Lawrence Nermy, the defense. Oh, really? And, yeah, you know, and that's really, that's another sad outcome, because with with Nermy, I felt really bad for him, because he was assigned the case, he was just a state defense, you know, a, a attorney getting, you know, 30000 a year, and, and you get assigned a case, and uh, he didn't want to do it. He tried to get off the case three times. The judge wouldn't let him. Then it became this real circus, you know, media circus all of a sudden. And everybody just slammed him. You know, he's he's fat. He's this. He's that. They call you know the people that wanted her to get off didn't like him because he wasn't going to do the job. And then the other people didn't like him because he was defending a murderer. His wife and kids got threatened constantly. They had to go into hiding. He gets cancer to top it off. Oh, really? I and, didn't know. and then, and then, um, so then he he get he he worked himself out of cancer. He's he's in remission. Then he writes the book about his case, and so then they just bar him because Jody Arias brought up charges like saying basically, you know. He 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 talked about the you know attorney-client privilege, so they, so they took away his 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 practice for four years. Uh, she's still pulling strings from behind the, the the bars, and it's still the people in the country that are paying for it. Taxpayers pay for her to get an attorney um, to do all this stuff. I didn't know he was disbarred. You know, I, I wasn't yeah. aware of that. Hey, but, but let me ask you a question. Do, do you think she got a fair trial in, in that, you know, HLN, 
every night, especially that Vinny Politano guy uh, was doing that segment with the, he had the, the mock jury. And the, the question would be, well, is she evil or just crazy? <laughs> you know, like, how can you have a fair trial if they have a two hour show on every single night demonizing your client? Yeah, uh, that's something I ask everybody that I talk to and everybody in the criminal field. And uh, sometimes I get the answer of, well, you know, um, it's it, everybody has the right to see these trials and that. I, I think that it's wrong. I think that they should be able to to film the trial. I think England's got it the best. I think they've got it right. You can you can film the trial. You can do the whole thing, but it doesn't come out until it's settled. So um, oh. it's not happening during. You can watch it afterwards. You can see the transcripts after. You can do all that. And the news can only talk about facts, and they can't editorialize until the conviction or the acquittal happens. And and I think that's, for me, I think that's the best way because otherwise, uh, and you know, because how can you do your job when every day the media is out there talking and people are talking about your hairstyle like Marsha Clark, remember? Oh, she she changed her hair. Or look what tie he's wearing. Look what, uh, you know, and Saturday Night Live's making fun of you like they had, you know, things on. I don't know how you can do your job on either side, defense or prosecutor when you're the subject of everything all over the place on TV. Um, well, yeah, in the Arias I, case, too, as well, they were threatening her expert witnesses that they refused to come back at, at the sentencing. Uh, uh, yeah. It's, you know, my God. And, and <laughs> it's wrong. It's yeah. wrong. It's just, it's affecting the outcome. You know, and, and some of them, like, because even Lawrence Nermy said to me that, well, um, that the legal system is just going to have to learn how to adapt to social media and, you know and maybe that's true I don't know but I, I think that it's so unfair you know look at that whole Steve Avery thing you know it's just everything mm. gets blown out of proportion and we don't know what's real and what's not what's what's the true facts we're not in the courtroom itself and we just get excerpts I don't know I'm, I'm not for it uh, yeah, no, yeah, I was very distressed by that. I think it was really at a, at a fever pitch back then with that Vinnie Politan basically tampering with the jury every night by doing his, his shows. It's so, so slanted and so uh, horrible. Uh, yeah. Really disappointed. Yeah, he's, he's still on it. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's off, man. He's off the air. He's gone. I think he had a couple of. No, he's on, he's on, he's on Atlanta TV at Channel 11, and he's got his crime con thing going on. So right now he's. Uh, he he broadcasts live all the time, and he's working on the uh, Sandusky case, you know Jerry Sandusky, because uh, you know he got put away for molesting the schoolboys. You know he was the coach. Sure. His his son just got uh, arrested for molesting. Yeah, um, I caught that. Yeah, his son was uh, contacting little girls and getting them to send uh, him uh, naked pictures. Uh, he yeah. became obsessed with these little girls. Uh, he had some kind of contact with. Uh, uh, yeah. Really bizarre just, there. Hey, so uh, what else can we find at uh, somethingweirdmedia.com? Well, um, I, I produce a lot of shows for people um, that are on radio stations, different places, and some podcasts. And uh, I, do, I do two different people that do paranormal shows. And, uh, of course, I have the House of Mystery, which is on um, Seattle and Phoenix and podcast. And um, also True Crime Case Files, who um, I contribute to. 
and a lot of books that I recommend that aren't mine. <laughs> I haven't got mine on there, actually. I, everybody else. Like when I read and, and talk to people and do interviews with people and um, and other radio people, anybody that that does stuff that is really good, I find interesting, I try to promote on that website. It's just kind of a place that you can come if you're into true crime or and history as well. Like I'm, I'm really big on JFK and RFK and... Uh, Patty Hearst and some of the big events in history, and, and I like to promote authors and people that um, that that write really good things or, or put out really good things. And if I really enjoy it, I want other people to know. Listen, if they like me and they like kind of how I work, which you're getting a feel for me now from the show, but um, I like to promote people that that do good work. I hope I make the cut because let me tell you something. <laughs> That's all the stuff. Patty Hearst, man, we love that stuff. Uh, Watergate, we're big on Watergate here, JFK. Uh, that's all yeah. kind of true crime. We handle all that stuff too as well. Uh, I had some kind of uh, some kind of uh, some uh, breaking news stuff we had here. Uh, oh, did you know that um, uh, Frank Sturgis, one of the Watergate burglars, uh, he had his own B twenty five bomber. Oh, <laughs> he had his own <laughs> bomber jet. <laughs> okay, his own no. personal bomber jet. And he actually dropped bombs on uh, President Duvalier's house in the in a Haiti down there, or no, it might have been Jamaica. I think, yeah, I think it might have been Jamaica because over a gambling debt, <laughs> he dropped bombs wow. on the president. Yeah, so we got a bunch of uh, exclusive stuff here that uh, hasn't been around anywhere else. Um, That's crazy. You know, I, that whole thing is fascinating to me because I, I'm I'm 55 this year, and for me. Uh, when I grew, I w- I'm so disillusioned now because I thought the '60s and I just thought it was such a good time and yeah. people people did the right thing, and you know, I'm just disillusioned because I'm I, every day and every as the years go by, I find out so many more things like you know the Watergate, and then you find out so many more things about the people and and the whole JFK thing. There's so many theories and and uh, Dorothy Kelgallen is what we've been working on lately. Um, about how she's found dead, you know, and uh, how she interviewed Jack Ruby twice, and then all of her interview stuff is gone. Yeah, I just had Mark Shaw on the on the show. Just a, in fact, he's going to do a, a show on one of my stations. He's going he's to become a host. Uh, just had yeah. him on the show like two weeks ago. Yeah, isn't that? But that's fascinating. That book, you see, that's one I'm. I'm I, that book, I think, is fascinating. I like the idea, things like that. I like people that just put out evidence. They're not trying to sway me with anything. They just say, look. Here's this reporter that did all this great work that in the '60s, which was Dorothy Kelgallen was a big, big reporter that was doing stuff that had over. She was in 200 papers from the the Hearst thing, and uh, I just I just think that um, something like that she just got kind of brushed under, you know. Yeah, you know what I found out too is um the guy who took over hosting uh, What's My Line after her was married to the daughter of Earl Warren. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? There's just too many coincidences yeah. for me. I just, you know, with all of this stuff, and even, even at, you know, and there was times I was thinking, because I'm not, like, necessarily conspiracy, but but even the Marilyn Monroe thing, and now it, it, as time goes by, you hear different things, you know, and and I just wonder if if she was murdered or not. It's questionable now. And... uh well, you know, Mike Rothmiller uh, is going to be doing a book about the murder of Marilyn Monroe, and he actually read all her diaries, and he interviewed the guy who wiretapped her apartment. Uh, that was my most 
popular uh, topic was the, 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 the murder, I believe it was a murder of Marilyn Monroe, and the authors, um, Morgalis, Morgallon, I forget his name, um, they sold like 300 books that night f- from doing this show. Um, and, but Mike Rothmiller is going to be doing a book about that. I'm really looking forward to that. He's a former LAPD intelligence uh, uh, detective uh, out yeah. of California. You've heard of him, uh, Mike Rothmiller? No, actually, I, d- I don't know him. I know the Margolis, um, Jay Margolis, who did the other book, yeah. And, uh, I, yeah, it's fascinating. It I sure is. That's yeah, a great topic, too. Yeah, Marilyn Monroe, the, the death of Princess Diana, I, I, we covered that. We, and we tried to cover it. Um, I like to do well, there's questions. There's questions with all of these because yeah. um, we find out that, that it's just not, we're just not getting the truth. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not this you know, uh, the world's flat and big conspiracy thing. But um, some of these things, they have some pretty decent evidence that makes you go, wow, I wonder. Um, I, I, I don't, I try not to come to conclusions because once you do, you no longer look for answers. Uh, I, I just leave it open and try to bring in the evidence because I don't know if we'll ever really find out the ultimate truth, but um, there's definitely a lot of questions. Yeah, I like to bring people on and just get their their record down, you know, get, get their statement down on record, you know, and, and make a make an oral record of it. And I try and get as many people right before they die too, you know. Some of these people, are, yeah. <laughs> you know, time, yeah. time's moving on. Uh, no. Yeah, you know, another another interesting one. Uh, if if you the Pearl Harbor, have you ever talked to the? Uh, um, I you know I talked to Thomas Kimmel. He's the grandson of Admiral Kimmel that got all the blame for the Pearl Harbor thing. No, I have not looked into that at all. I'm not a big history guy, uh, and it was never one of my big topics in school. But but what's the theory behind that? Well, the thing is, Admiral Kimmel was in charge of the, uh, you know, the fleet in Hawaii in the West, and um, when they got word, because when they were breaking the code, the Japanese code, they knew that there was something going on, and they got kind of word that there might be a, an attack, and they even had sent it to the the president and and all the cabinet that it was pretty eminent they didn't even warn him they didn't even say anything to him Hmm. they just sort of left it and said well you know whatever and uh you know the attack happens and then so the admiral kind of got the blame because he's ultimately he's in charge so it's his fault so he kind of got he got his two stars taken away and he kind of got uh discredited a lot through the through the press and at the time and so he dies, and time goes on, and now the grandsons want him to be reinstated as as a general because they have this evidence now that the, that the president, as well as the secretaries of, of state and defense, um, were on warning, were warned, and didn't even let him know. Well, a lot of people say that, though, that we, uh, we, we were aware of, and we let it happen because we wanted to get into the war in the Pacific. We wanted to get into war against Japan. Yeah, you know? I've heard that. Yeah. But they didn't go that far. They, what they were saying was that um, wh- what we did do is we did know that, they, that um, the Japanese were sending their people in Pearl Harbor. They told them to, uh, to tell them where all the different boats were, what boats were in the, in the harbor. They had all these questions. I knew that was going on. So they don't necessarily know there's an attack. But then they also were told all of the different, you know, their dignitaries in Pearl Harbor to leave. Um, so we do know that they knew that. I'm, I'm not a strategist, a military strategist, yeah. but, uh, you know, if I was the commander of the base and if 
I would want to be told that. Yeah, and didn't we have all their codes cracked anyway? Like we kind of were listening to all their stuff. Yeah, for four months before the attack. Yeah. But all those all those codes were sent to the president and to the to Washington, and they did know that, and they didn't pass any of that information on. And that's kind of what the grandsons are saying, which I think that's fair enough. Um, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't you can't just blame it on one person. Um, when you all, you know what I'm saying? It'd be yeah, like, you know, yeah. you're Washington and the president, everybody kind of knows, and we're not going to tell the person in charge of the Navy. And then they get bombed, and you just kind of throw them under the bus. That's what happened. Alan, can we take a little commercial break here, and then uh, we'll come back, we'll wrap up, and tell me about what books you're working on. And uh, also, too, since you're a producer, I need a guest for this uh, Saturday night at 5 o'clock. If you could look through your Rolodex while. <laughs> While the commercials play, okay, I'll impose on you here a bit. Maybe you got somebody in your pocket there for me. Uh, but let me take a little commercial break and then we'll wrap up. We got Alan R. Warren. The book is Above Suspicion The True Story of Serial Killer uh, Russell Williams. And Alan's got a lot of cool stuff, man. So check out somethingweirdmedia.com. We'll be right back after these messages. And maybe Alan will get me a guest for a Saturday. And now a word from our sponsors. Did you know that 30% of all people on online dating websites and personal ads are either married or in a monogamous relationship? 30%. If you suspect that your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend may be cheating online, go to emailrevealer.com at our online infidelity investigation. You give us their email address, and we can trace it back to online personal ads, dating sites, and social networks. We can even expand the investigation and find them uh, cheating on uh, escort service sites uh, or even porn sites if they're registered to porn sites and swinger sites. Uh, so check out emailrevealer.com if you suspect your spouse is cheating, and check out our online infidelity investigation. William Ramsey is a producer here at the Opperman Report, and he's just come out with a new book, Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. Now, he just sent me a copy of this book. Oh, boy, it's about two inches thick. And there's a chapter on just about everybody in this book uh, that you can imagine, uh, the Beatles and... Uh, <laughs> uh, Jack Parsons... Uh, everybody's in here. It's incredible. Uh, and I definitely recommend this book. There's a, a, a bunch of pictures in here, too, uh, of all these people in uh, different chapters and, and uh, information. Uh, Anton LaVey and people I've never heard of, too. There's a whole bunch in here. JC, JFC Fuller. I don't know who he is. Uh, but, but it's great stuff uh, by our, ho our, our producer here, uh, William Ramsey. So check out Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. Uh, you can find it on Amazon.com, or you can find it in the Opperman Report uh, .com bookstore. We have an urgent bulletin. Uh, it seems that the group Strawman is still on the loose. It has been confirmed that Strawman are, are Canadian, okay, and that. Uh, Authorities are asking people to stay indoors, 
lock your doors and windows until this group can be dealt with. You could find more information about this group, this group of Canadians, at strawmanmusic.com. You can have your ad played here. <laughs> okay. We're looking for sponsors. Okay, In fact, we desperately need sponsors right now to take this show to the next level. Uh, so you can have your advertise your ad uh, played here. Red Live, you know, like I'm doing now so artfully. Or we can even uh, work up a little jingle for you with some music and stuff like that and play it here. You have no idea how inexpensive it would be uh, to have your ad played on the Opperman Report on seven stations uh, live Friday night and another seven stations live on Saturday night, uh, plus replayed every day of the week on different stations. And then archived on YouTube, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and all different kinds of podcasts, uh, Pod This and Pod Bean, all different kinds of places uh, who archive the show for us. Uh, and, and on those archives, uh, your, your ad would play indefinitely, forever. Uh, you also get a little uh, banner on OppermanReport.com. Uh, you get a mention on the air. You get a little interview on the air and all kinds of fun stuff if you sponsor Opperman Report. We have an opportunity to get this show on a major AMFM station in California. We've been approved. Uh, so if you want to sponsor us into that, uh, so incredibly inexpensive that, that your ad would be heard uh, by a uh, the, the, the range covers 5 million people in population uh, where your ad would be broadcast and all these other uh, stations would be thrown in for free. Uh, so really uh, affordable prices to sponsor OppermanReport.com. Get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. You can get a copy of that book at emailrevealer.com or you can get a copy of that book. Now it's back up on Amazon.com. How to Become a Successful Private Investigator by Ed Opperman. And this book has been updated a little bit from the previous book that we had uh, that was available to our wonderful listeners. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, Private Investigator Ed Opperman. Uh, we're here with Alan R. Warren, Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. And his website is somethingweirdmedia.com. Hey, so Alan, you were saying you had some a uh, couple of books you're working on right now? Yeah, I've got uh, two going on right now. I've got um, one one big one that um, it's going to take a lot of time. It probably won't be finished before fall. And um, it, it's, it's about a person that was um, put away uh, for committing a murder that now we know he didn't do. And um, I'm actually getting... Uh, interviews with him, um, his family, um, the prosecutor at the time, and the one that actually um, um, has helped to get him cleared. So a lot of, a lot of first source knowledge, which is, so it's going to be a really, really interesting read uh, by the time it's finished. I, it, the more, more people you can talk to when you're doing these things, the, the better the book. Yeah, is he still put away or is he out now? No, he's well. He he got released, okay. and he wasn't he wasn't allowed to leave the Chicago area until just recently. And um, um, they're still deciding whether or not to retry him, even though they have DNA proving he didn't do it. Just it's back to that, you know, um, pig-headedness. Sometimes uh, prosecutors will get um, because they just don't want to give up 
give up the ghost, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know. and what's the other one? Yeah, it's about a, a vampire killer in Montreal. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's another one of those guys that thinks he's a vampire and uh, would kill uh, kill people. Uh, kill, he was killing women, and he would suck their blood. Well, yeah, you know, if you drink their blood, that, yeah, then you're a vampire, for what, no matter what the reason is, you know, that makes you a vampire. That's vampirism. You know, if you drink yeah, their right. blood, and there's a lot of people do it. <laughs> there's a lot of people that are doing it. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I don't have a taste for it myself. I kind of like a little bit of Starbucks, but not blood. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, so that that that's an interesting one as well. Um, you know, just how it, just the mentality of someone like that, and how they really believe they're a vampire, and you kind of get into the uh, um, actually talking and figuring out why and 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 what makes them believe they're a vampire. You know, what what is it? You know, because vampires are just totally fictional creatures that we've done with Hollywood and Dracula and stuff, and. And what makes people believe that that's what they are? Hmm. They, were they actually going out and doing it? Now, now he he's in, he's in prison right now for murdering somebody and then drinking their blood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So three people that we know about. <laughs> Again, oh, that's one of those. I leave it at that because you never know it. But when they're older, when they're like forty, I just don't think people turn on the button and start doing it at forty. Right. Right. Yeah. You always wonder. You know. Yeah, because what what happens to you when you you know all of a sudden? I mean, I never had that when I turned forty. I never decided. Well, let's let's go out and start draining blood and and drinking it. He was drinking it right from the victims too, so he didn't even store it. He had to uh, do a fresh kill and then do it. Well, you know, we're both about the same age, so we don't know yet. You know, we, still time, you know, things can go south for us, man. Yeah. yeah, well, maybe. You know what? If it turns on and I decide that I'm going to start doing it, I'll give you a call. call I'll, me I'll up, let man, you be yeah. the first to interview me. I've got no social life, man. Well. <laughs> you know, I'll, uh, I'll let you have the exclusive. Listen, Alan, thank you so much, man. Uh, I really love this story, this this Russell Williams, uh, the, uh, Above Suspicion, The True Story of Sir Killer Russell Williams. And I'm definitely going to check out your website, too, there. Uh, uh, the... Um, somethingweirdmedia.com uh, if you do think of a guest for me because I do need a guest for Saturday I might have somebody booked uh, my friends over at Trine Day are hooking me up with some guy who wrote a book about the, um, the Ku Klux Klan and how they, they want to kill everybody uh, but if you come up with somebody shoot me an email you know Oh yeah, for sure. Actually, you know, there's a few, uh, so few because I, you know, working at these two different publishers, I know quite a few writers, got to know writers. So if you like uh, true crime writers, there's a few here that I um, that I know. I can send you some info. And they, well, some of them, like uh, I was thinking of Chris Sweeney, C. L. Sweeney. He's written uh, five or six uh, pretty good bestsellers, and I've talked to him a few times. He's a really nice, nice guest to have on, and he's uh, written about some pretty big cases. Okay, great. Okay, great. I'll tell you what, yeah, I'm going to send you my email right after the show, okay? Yeah, do that. Listen, uh, Alan Warren, thank you so much, okay? And I'll be in touch with you. Great, thank you. Good night. Okay, there we had Alan R. Warren. Uh, the book is Above Suspicion, The True Story of Serial Killer Russell Williams. I really like that guy. Um, and his website... Is um, 
somethingweirdmedia.com. Now, we do kind of, I'm joking around, we do kind of have a guest book uh, for, uh, let me see if I got it. I might be getting my little confirmation. Oh, right now. I was just informed by my team. I don't know. I'm hoping I'm bad news here. Uh, okay. The guest we, we possibly have locked up for this week is... Um, ah, come on. I'm not going to be able to find this guy. Ah, brother. Come on. I'm going to look over here. Okay, here we go. It's over here. Killing God's Enemies is the name of the book. The Crazy War Against Jews, African Americans, and the U.S. Government. So that should uh, please uh, most of our guests, except for most of our listeners, except for the ones that they have this Jew obsession. Uh, though they'll be disappointed that I'm not against killing Jews. Okay? That's, believe it or not. Okay, in the, the year 2017. Um, I'm working on a, a whole presentation, too, uh, that's going to be coming up shortly. Oh boy, it's uh, taken me uh, around the freaking world here. Uh, um, oh, with Rob Lowe, you might recall the story about Rob Lowe filming his uh, illegal sexual encounter with a 16-year-old at the Democratic Convention in uh, Atlanta way back, I think it was in the 80s. Now, the girl was 16 years old. The age of consent at the time in Atlanta was 14, but it's illegal because it's illegal to film anybody under the age of 18 in a sexual act, okay? So that was a crime. I don't know why this guy's not in prison because there's a lot of guys out there uh, who've done way less than that got charged. So we're going to be looking into him and his childhood friends. Who is Rob Lowe's childhood buddies? Well, he went to the same high school with none other than Charlie Sheen and Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr., another guy who was found in the bed of an 11-year-old. 11-year-old boy neighbor. And he's in the kid's bed. Passed out. Now, the official story is the little boy wasn't there at the time. Bed was empty. And Mr. Downey was checking beds. This one's too big. This one's too small. This one's just right. And he wound up in the 11-year-old's bed, bedroom, in his bed, passed out. Okay, that's the official story. Anyway, so we're going to be looking into that. Rob Lowe, um, Morton Downey Jr., uh, Robert Downey Jr., not Morton Downey Jr., and Charlie Sheen, and all of their friendship, their wonderful friendship between each other. Uh, and also, too, I've been looking into the case, very interesting, of uh, David Copperfield. And I pulled up all the court docs on that lawsuit against him by this young woman who claimed that he took her down to his private island in the Bahamas and he pretty much held her captive down. He took away her passport and stuff. Molested her, raped her, blah, 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 all this stuff. Only to find out that, well, you know who he's good buddies with? Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, what do you know? What do you know? Small world. I guess when you have private islands, your own private islands, and you have this pattern going on. It's a small world, is what I suppose. So we've got a lot coming up. And I don't have my notes in front of me right now, so I'm not going to get started. Oh, also, too, I uncovered the... Uh, I got a lot of stuff I'm working on. I may, I may just do a whole two hours just talking about that on Saturday. But otherwise, we'll be booking a guest uh, coming up. Anyway, don't forget, 
our new friends at this Dove Chocolate Place, right? The part to remember when we're looking for this is the name Phoebe Said. Phoebe S-A-A-D. And where is he at? Copy on this. There we go. Because she's the sponsor. Phoebe Sad. P-H-O-E-B-E-S-A-A-D. That's the sponsor. And what she's selling is this Dove Chocolate Discoveries. Right? And uh, just for the um, the martini mixes alone and the coffee mixes alone, you want to go down there and check out some products on this website. MyDCDSite.com front slash Phoebe Saad, S-A-A-D, <laughs> okay? You want to go check that out. So, and, you know, you make a couple little purchases, makes the sponsor happy, makes me happy, you know, and then, then when I do my after show, I'm not upset all the time. I'm not crying and moaning and griefing. You get yourself a chocolate martini. Yeah, you sip your martini as you listen to the show. You're happy. The sponsor's happy, and I'm happy, and nobody gets hurt, Okay which is always a consideration when you're dealing with the Opperman Report. You never know. Things could turn ugly here at any moment. <laughs> Things could turn ugly. Let's face it. <laughs> okay, who are we kidding? Things could go bad here quick. You got you to gotta realize that. I'll be right back after these messages. The Opperman Report is brought to you by SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company located in India. So you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service to boot. They offer all kinds of services, uh, business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, uh, software testing, offshore research networking, uh, customer care, press release content writing and distribution, and much, much more. They offer website development, e-commerce solutions, mobile responsive designs. Now, I've personally worked with Subash for over 10 years. Uh, this is the man that puts out my press releases. Uh, they've done work on my websites, so I can personally recommend SubashTechnosis.com. You can find a link to Subash Technosis at OppermanReport.com and also AwakeRadio.us. Welcome to our new sponsor. Okay, well, yeah, sorry about that. I was on mute. I was on mute there for a couple of seconds. Uh, let me see. Okay, there you go. Welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman. So we just had on the show Alan R. Warren, author of the book Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. You know, interesting, because uh, this guy, Russell Williams, he was flying around. This guy was an elite Air Force guy, and he's flying around the Queen of England and Princess Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I didn't get a chance to see if uh, this uh, Prime Minister uh, of Canada or the Governor General uh, were on the list of Epstein's uh, guests on his plane. 
Uh, but if they were, I would say that that would send uh, shockwaves through me, and that, that's something that needs to be checked out. So if anybody's in the chat room wants to take a look at that and see, uh, see right now if there's any kind of connection there, I'd be interested in hearing about that. And don't forget our friend Phoebe Syed at mydcsite.com. Phoebe Syed, front slash. Uh, good old stuff there. There's chocolate. I bet they even have chocolate milk. Right? Chocolate. Uh, who knows? Okay. Well, I guess what we'll do is I'll uh, is that we'll um, I got about 20 minutes to fill here, so with 17 minutes, I'll, I'll put together a little produced segment, then I'll read it and then play it for you here. So thank you so much, guys, and I'll see you next week.